Hello everyone, I'm thrilled to publish my first episode on R Academy. For this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Maxime Robert. He's an assistant professor at the Université of Laval in Quebec under the Faculty of Medicine in the Department of Rehabilitation. Dr. Robert primarily studies motor learning and control in children with cerebral palsy and identifying the neurological biomarkers that predict motor function in children's upper limbs. In this episode, we discuss his academic background, how his scholastic and personal history shaped his future studies, the nature of cerebral palsy, how it can be rehabilitated, and the neurological benefits that proper rehab brings about in children with this movement disorder. And we also end our conversation by discussing the rather unknown fact that academia is nested in the English language. To support this podcast, please share this episode with your friends and family, subscribe to my YouTube channel, rate it five stars on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and most importantly, please leave feedback on my podcast. Any and all comments are welcomed. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate taking the time. It's uh, really exciting to actually start this project. So to uh, make sure everyone's on board with the same idea, can you tell us about your academic history and where you are now and what's your main topics of focus. Yeah, thank you for inviting me and uh, good luck with the podcast. Thank it you, thank really you. interesting. So just a brief history about my academic. I started after CEGEP, which is a college in- What year was that? That was in, actually that was in 2006. Okay. 2005, 2006, I started in, in uh, the CEGEP in uh, Saint-Lambert, in an English uh, college which I didn't speak English at all at first. Okay. So that was also a challenge to learn my English. So, but that went okay. But uh, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't interested in, univers in academic during okay. the, the, the CEGEP. Mm -hmm. So uh, then I, I did a social science. Uh, so I was- What I, I, field or specialty in social there was, science? There was no specialty. Oh. I just wanted to have the diploma. So Okay. And then- because I, I was really interested to go as a police officer at first. Okay. So that was my ultimate goal. But as you know, I'm not allowed to be a police officer because of my handicap. So I okay. have lower limb amputation. Can and you I, talk a little bit about that if you feel comfortable? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so basically, when I was 10 days after I was born, okay. I got diagnosed with an unknown disease. It's a blood circulation disease. Okay. So what I... What happened is after 10 days, I, w I went to Montreal, the pediatric hospital in Montreal. And what they observed is my leg was white and cold. And then a few days later, it became black. Oh. So the doctors had no idea what was the cause. We still don't know nowadays. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was really uh, interesting, I would say, for my parents. It's very challenging also. Like, I assume that was very stressful. It was very stressful, <laughs> at least from what they told me. Yeah. So what they did is I spent there for three months and a half at the hospital. And during that time, for at least three weeks, they kept telling my parents, oh, he's going to pass away in five hours, six hours or 10 hours. Wow. Yeah. That's horrific. <laughs> I don't remember, lucky enough. Yeah. Uh, but my parents do remember quite yeah. well about the different steps. So the, at that time, they had to amputate my leg. I also had a heart surgery. I lost a kidney. So all because of that. All so, in that three month span? All in that three month span. Wow. So they really tried to do everything. Yeah. And then after three months and a half, I went back to back home. Yeah. And since I'm a kid, I like until the age of 20, 21 years old, yeah. I had over about. Okay, everything's on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we, all, we already had about uh, 20, 25 surgeries. 
Wow. Uh, up to the age of 20, 21. Okay, that's so, like a surgery a year almost. Yeah, almost a surgery a year. So let's A little say, bit more, actually. Uh, yeah, sometimes it was two or three surgeries a year. But, uh, I mean, you're learning through that. You're le- Like, the quality I, I developed through that, it's very, like, I'm the person who I am nowadays because of that. Or at least I like to believe so. I would assume so. Uh, yeah, I would assume so. <laughs> it's pretty strong environmental pushing factor yeah definitely um so but it's also because i was really sportive so the um so sometimes i just injured myself or they had to reconstruct their knee three times on my on, okay yeah, yeah yeah so i'm i'm below the knee empty yeah so i still have the knee luckily yeah. um so at least i can do a lot of sports uh, well people with uh, transfer all amputees they can still do sports but it's harder yeah. so so yeah, back uh, now going back to uh, Sejep. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I really wanted to be a police officer, but I didn't, I, I couldn't do it because of the insurance and the right. policy. So I applied to go in kinesiology at the Université du Québec à Montréal, a French university, which I got in. Congrats. And thank you. <laughs> so that was in 2007. So about uh, 15, 16 years from now. Wow. So I did my undergrad in kinesiology and one of my course was about neuroscience and i really like the the novelty of neuroscience it's not really uh, new but for me it was new so i really like the approach of understanding how you move through the brain yeah. so what uh, my professor Regent Dubuc at that time he's still a professor at uh, ucam but yeah. his lab is at university of montreal he's doing some uh, neuro like udm udm yeah exactly yeah. So he's doing a lot of research in lampreys, which is kind of a fish that goes towards another fish and take the blood. And okay. So uh, and he studies their neuro neurological um, qualities, I guess. Well, he studies their respirate respiratory system in relation to the locomotion system. So it's very fundamental study. So he invited me for a summer internship. So he has a very like Aquarius lab. Yes. Okay, okay, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. can say that. Yeah, I'm just like thinking of the environment over there. Yeah, so you have the animal facilities uh, at uh, another level, and then you go take a lamprey, and then you bring it to the lab. Yeah. And what we did, it's called a liquid ringé. So it's yeah. basically how to survive the fish in a specific liquid. So we took out the brain and the locomotion pathways. Which is a lot of things, actually. It's a lot of <laughs> things, especially for a first-year student who had no experience in that field. Uh, but it was very uh, interesting. It opens you a lot of possibilities to go. So sometimes when you're in CEGEP or university as a first year, you're not too familiar with the possibilities in research. So he gave me this opportunity. I stayed there for four years, led me to... Uh, Which is a very long time for those who don't know. Like staying in one lab at undergrad for four years is extraordinarily loyal. Oh, I meant four months. Sorry. Oh, four yeah, months. Yeah, yeah, four, four months. I, okay. I'm sorry. My, my apologies. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> so yeah it, it was four months so i meant during the whole summer okay yeah okay, okay, okay. but actually four years i spent four years in a different lab so i'll be i'll okay. i'll I'll, t- I'll talk more about this later yeah. um, so i did four months and then i pub- we published two papers i was a third author yeah. which is kind of normal since i was a summer student mm-hmm. but it was a really a, a good experience but i figured out it was not for me i i really like the approach with the human yeah and let's be honest talking with fish lampreys it's limited (laughs) it's very limited it's a very important field but it it is not for me so what happened is after that i 
had the chance to go in a different lab for the second years, uh, the second summer uh, yeah. during my undergrad, which I studied the physiological mechanisms of tre uh, tremor. So which very fundamental studies with laser and then just trying to see uh, the physiological tremor, how it is first appear in individuals, healthy adults, etc. Okay. So that was a really good. And you're studying that in humans. In humans. Yeah. That's, in adults. Yeah. So that was a really good experience. But again, not something I really enjoyed. And one of the key point about research is you're not going to do a master or a PhD degree if you're not that interested. That's correct. <laughs> As you know, yeah, you have to be very uh, enthusiastic about yeah. that work. Yeah. You don't, basically, when you go in the lab, it's, it shouldn't be a burden. Yeah, of course. You should wake up and be like, okay, I really want to go. It happens a lot that just before bed, you're thinking about your research. You wake up during the night be thinking about your research, and that's how you're going to stand out or to become a professor, you really yeah. need to be really involved. Yeah. And I, it's okay for me to work in healthy adults or elderly, but it's not something that was, I, I was really, uh, I don't know how to say it, but that was really ent enthusiastic or really yeah. uh, that. There was like a distance that was preventing you from being fully in. Is what yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's a better way to say it. So the third year, during my third year, I, we had to do an internship and whatever because it's kinesiology so it could be in sports or training and i had the opportunity to do it in research yeah. working in kids with cerebral palsy so age yeah. between 5 to 7 8 17 18 years old okay. so this professor martin lemay who's also still a professor at université du québec in montreal yeah. he uh, invited me to do my internship for the whole year and then i did my under uh, my so third summer also so i got a scholarship for that so Congrats. I, thank you. So that was the, the first one I, I received. And, and from then I very I developed my own research uh, studies. So basically yeah. we were interested about the role of virtual reality. So did you, just to clarify, did you like draft up your own research question or was that brainstorm? Like how did that process So go? we brainstormed okay. with the researcher. Obviously the researcher had an idea of, about a specific project. Uh, but he was kind enough to introduce me to a few other people, but also to the research aspect. And then we did a lot of brainstorming. Yeah. So it's a very unique uh, um, opportunity for a summer student. Yes, it is. But, <laughs> so that's where I stayed over four years in this lab. Oh, okay. So it okay. all started because I, during my undergrad, I started with him. Yeah. And it, still a few weeks ago, we received another grant. So we're still collaborating on a weekly basis. So that's... That's very cool. Yeah, very cool. he's a very important mentor for me. He introduced me to a lot of research, the downside, the positive side, etc. Okay. But uh, yeah, so we discussed about the use of virtual reality for children with cerebral palsy. And positive. what year was this in? That was in, was it in 2010? 2010 to 2012, I did my master's degree with him. Yeah, so the, that's very early in VR like development. Yeah, so... We have to, we'll, we'll be able to redefine what is virtual reality, I'm sure, later For on. Sure. But we're, I'm also uh, integrating serious gaming. Yeah. So the use of Kinect, uh, PlayStation, the Wii, Nintendo Wii, etc. Mm -hmm. So in that project, we, we had the chance to use the Nintendo Wii to promote uh, motor functions or motor recovery in those kids. Yeah. So that was a really uh, interesting pathway. So At the I time, was that very novel as like a research avenue? Uh, it was... 
it's funny because we had this uh, discussion about a week ago uh, okay. with this supervisor. Uh, I used to believe it was very novel, yeah. but at the same time, there was over 30 labs around the world doing the same type of research. In the same population? Uh, in the same population, maybe five or six, okay. five to 10 labs. Okay. So it was novel, but it was not that novel. Yeah, you so weren't first. Yeah, yeah, we weren't first. Okay. Okay. We're one of the first study who look at the energic energy expenditure for those kids. Mm -hmm. So whether you can attain a moderate vigor or too vigorous physical activity, but yeah, we were not the only one who's yeah, doing it. But it's still early though, to put it into perspective. Yeah. And it, that's also about research is everyone is doing the same thing at the same time. So it's all about a race, who's going to publish first. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to go away from that in a sense that for me, research now is all about collaboration. Right. You shouldn't do it by yourself just in your research lab. There's always going to be people around you who's going to be smarter. They're going to be more creative. They're going to have the right people in their lab. So for me, it's very important that everyone try to collaborate together, especially in that population that it's it's not that common. Yeah. So if you want to increase the, the sample size, then yeah. you have to start collaborating yeah. with other people. And especially nowadays, it's a multidisciplinary approach. Yeah. So someone's going to have an expertise in VR or virtual reality. Someone's going to have expertise in AI, yeah. neuroscience, uh, rehabilitation, etc. So yeah, I did this during my master's degree. And then I really want, I was really on the field in the sense that I was looking at rehabilitation rather. But I know that cerebral palsy is a neurological disorder, yeah. which I'm sure we're going to be able to describe later. Um, so what we decided, what I decided at least is to do a doctoral training. So to pursue to be an academic scientist. Yeah. So I decided to go to McGill University yeah. in the rehab um, department. That is that at the Montreal Neurological Institute? So yeah, there's, yeah, that's a good question. There's the MNI, the Montreal Neurological yeah. Institute, but there's also SPOT. So that's the rehab depar department. Yeah. So the professor, I, I, my PhD supervisor, She's from the rehab department, yeah. but I was in the neuroscience department. So, so you were cross-departmental, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So my main affiliation was neuroscience, mm -hmm. but I took courses in the rehab department. Because okay. I think, uh, especially like in individuals with stroke, multiple sclerosis, uh, cerebral palsy, you have to understand how the brain works yeah. to improve the efficiency of rehabilitation. Yeah. So to maximize or optimize motor recovery, especially yeah. for those kids. So I really wanted to have a better understanding on the different brain mechanisms of brain plasticity, motor recovery, etc. Right. So that's why I decided to go into neuroscience. Yeah. So that was five years of my doctoral training, which is not necessarily long, but it really depends on the field. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so some people, let's say you're doing uh, epigenetics, yeah, what that, is epigenetics? Uh, so it's basically the the mod the, the 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 how genes are going to be developed or modified over time. Yeah, uh, it's a it's a topic that I'm not too familiar with, or it's not a topic that I'm not that I'm not interested. But I already have so much to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's takes five to ten years. So some of my friends graduated their doctoral training after eight years. Full time. Full time. Yeah, that's and a long time. <laughs> full, t full time for them, it's about 50 to 60 hours a week. Yeah, so, on average. On average. Some, sometimes it's longer. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, it's very demanding. 
but for me, um, so I, yeah, I really want to take these two approach and took five years to do the, the doctoral training. In rehab, so for my doctoral students, usually they try to graduate between three or four years. So it's very normal in rehab. But in different fields, it always depends on who's your supervisor, which university, which sets of skills that you want to develop. Uh, what is the population you're studying? Are you doing animal studies? Are you doing a longitudinal studies? So the, these are all the factors that you have to take into consideration. So for me, it doesn't mean much whether you're doing your doctoral training in three years or six years. Yeah. At the end, it's your skills, whether you're being able to apply it or transfer your knowledge to different fields. So, right. So right. for me, that's that's always what I try to emphasize with my students is, yes, you're doing it. It's very healthy. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. Um, but as you know, there's ups and downs when yeah, you're of course. doing uh, academic training. So sometimes it's it's fun. Sometimes you're getting discouraged and that, that's totally normal it's also a way to uh, learn how to deal with yourself to be better yeah. better yourself yeah and just before we like move into more like uh, specified topics can we like emphasize a distinction between doing an undergraduate degree and doing a doctoral degree like what is the exact differences for people who don't know yeah that's good so the under academic the undergraduate studies is you're going to get a specific set of skills or a large set of skills about a specific domain yeah. So, for example, so that's a major, essentially. Yeah, but a major of three years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, three to four yeah. years. So it really depends on where you are. So, for example, in Canada, the undergrad, it's a basically you're getting an undergraduate, so it's a bachelor in science. Yeah. For at least in my field, so it's three to four years. So you have all those courses that, let's say, for occupational therapy or physical yeah. therapy, which is. Um, I'm a professor in, in that department in rehabilitation at Université Laval. So you do a three years undergrad yeah. where you learn a lot, a lot of skills about the, physiologi uh, the physiological mechanism of the body. You learn about the clinical sets of uh, skills that you're required to do with when you're with a patient. You learn about neuroscience. So you learn all those basic skills mm -hmm. or that will allow you, help you to be, to be, to be, to go on your career, to have a specific set of skills, to help people, etc. So you're just acquiring a lot of things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's about three to four years, depending on which program. So for physical therapists, occupational therapists, it's three years. And then you do a professional master degree. Yeah. So in OT and PT, so occupational and physical therapists. So it's a year and a half here, at least in Quebec City. And in the so in that time you have more in uh, more sta uh, stage, so you go in the hospital internships, internships. For, for those who don't speak uh, French. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, no, no, that's yeah, that that's a good good that you correct me. Sometimes okay. uh, I'm gonna put some French words. Um, so yeah, sometimes uh, you do an internship in different hospitals or rehab center, etc. So basically, you're gonna see on the field how you can apply the set of skills that you learned through the last three years. And then you're going to be able to see a lot of population. Yeah. So that's the undergraduate slash professional master degree you can obtain, at least yeah. in this field. And then for a doctoral training, when aside the psychology, because sometimes some fields that you're required to do a doctoral training to uh, to practice, to practice. Yeah, exactly. As yeah. a psychologist, for yeah. example. But in our field, and at least in science, when you're doing a doctoral training is literally to get specific uh, set of skills 
in terms of science, in terms of research. So for example, if you want to do qualitative or quantitative studies, you're going to learn how to do the research, how to transcribe all the verbatims, how to do the stats, and then you're going to develop your own research question. Yeah. So, so you're uh, producing your own research instead of just consuming what it, others have already done in undergrad and all that. Exactly. Yeah. That's correct. So you're really learning how, how to develop things. Um, so the, the role, for example, for my role is as a director, is to help my students to develop their own research question. So at the end of their doctoral training, I want them to be a better expert in this field than me. So they should know better than me in that specific, uh, that specific field they're trying to graduate. So for example, one of my students is doing a neuroimaging techniques mm -hmm. in individuals with cerebral palsy. So I expect her to know more than me at the end of the four or five years training. Okay. So that's very, uh, that's how the doctoral training works, at least in Canada, but most of the places in the world, it's like yeah, that. At least for research degrees. For research degrees, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay. Unless you want to have a clinical PhD. Yeah, or... which is different, and I don't think, I don't have, I definitely don't have the expertise for that, so. Yeah, no, it's, it's very <laughs> different, so yeah. Okay, and then your postdoctoral degree was at Columbia University, correct? Yeah, so my postdoctoral my post training was, I did, I, again, I did in both, at two universities, at Cornell University and Columbia University. Okay, that's still within the same state, right? Yeah, they're okay. both in New York. So okay. one is upstate and then one, uh, uh, Cornell is upstate. Yeah. And except the medical uh, facilities in in, the, in Manhattan yeah. and Columbia University is also in Manhattan. Yeah, North Manhattan, yeah. Yeah, exactly, about 120 Street. It depends on which college. So for me, it was a teacher's college. So I decided to go there because I learned about the expertise about um, I learned about the skills on how the brain could interact and c could uh, alter the model functions, etc. But I, I really wanted to go into more details, learning about neuroimaging techniques. Yeah. So I went there, I, I, the two supervisors I had, one of them was considered an expert in neuroimaging, and the other one is an expert in developing intensive interventions. Okay. So I... I really like this idea of being able to combine both approach. And that's mm -hmm. uh, that was my goal when I first started research, at least my doctoral training. I really wanted to combine both. So I decided to go there for two years. I, I was uh, funded by the government of Quebec. So I, I, I stayed there for two years. I really learned about everything. So that was a very amazing experience, which I was able to publish uh, several papers, I uh, was able to supervise students, which are a set of skills that is required to become an academic professor. Because right. if not, then you're not going to receive grants, etc. And it's very competitive to to get a position in the academic. That's correct. So, yeah. <laughs> so in, I did this from 2017 to 2019. Okay. And then I got an interview at Université Laval, a French university in Quebec, and then at Quebec City. And then I, I, I received a position, so I started... Congratulations. Thank you. It's very hard. <laughs> <laughs> so I received a, I started the position in June, June, July 2019. Okay. So I was able to develop my own lab for a few months. And then the pandemic, pandemic yeah. hit, which was a very... It's very difficult to start your own lab during the pandemic. I can imagine so, especially since you have in-person studies that like are necessitated for your publications and your work. So... Exactly. must have had a lot of logistical complications with all that. Yeah, but it's good because the, the people in Quebec City are very encouraging. 
so yeah. that my colleagues they really helped me to develop my own lab etc uh, but obviously you need to put a lot of efforts to yeah. to make sure that just to collaborate with the clinicians uh, the other researchers to develop your own network so so i started about four years ago it's going to be f four years this summer that i'm a professor so 2023 so yeah okay that's a very it's a very long journey so it started in 2007 and ended in ended into or it culminated in 2019 yeah correct i assume you think that's worth it right <laughs> yeah that definitely <laughs> yeah. worth it yeah but i wouldn't recommend for someone to go in that field or in that track without being aware of all what's coming exactly <laughs> yeah. so for example uh, an undergrad student came to see me in a few weeks ago yeah. she's doing her undergrad and ma professional master degree and she's not sure whether she should go in research or practice as an occupational therapy. Right, which so, are two different things. Yeah, exactly. So, and two different degrees and two different supervisors, two different everything. Yeah, it's very different. Yeah. So I gave her the opportunity to come in my lab a few days a week for four months yeah. so she can learn about research. And then I told her, you should go practice for a few years. And then if you're really interested in research, then you can always come back. Because so, that's one thing about research, you don't have to go in research directly after your undergrad. Yeah, you can take a, a break, and sometimes it's good because you're you're learning new stuff, yeah. you're seeing more research questions, you're getting experience on the field, especially as a clinician. So yeah, it's it's like a maturation process, is what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> okay, okay. So then moving on to your topics of research with cerebral palsy. Um, can you give a global overview of what it is? So uh, under what category of disorders is it does it come under? What's the frequency? Uh, what are its potential origins or causes? Is it heritable? The floor is yours. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll try to be brief about this. Cause yeah. If not, I'm going to discuss of course, about of course, a few of hours. But it's, so basically cerebral palsy is the most common neuromotor disorder in children. Okay, so it's a prevalence of 1.5 to 2.5 per thousand live births. So it, it ranges across the world, but it's usually between 1.5 to 2.5. So the advance in medicine help us to stabilize those numbers. So that's a good thing. That's very good. Yeah. So what is cerebral palsy is, yes, it's a neuromotor disorder, but it actually happens during pregnancy. Okay. And sometimes up to six months or a year after the delivery yeah yeah so in that period of time so about 40 41 weeks of yeah. pregnancy you uh, the, the 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 fetus can have either lesions or infections yeah. or trauma or the mother is drinking alcohol or drugs etc so we know about 30 to 40 percent of the causes of cerebral palsy so all which is pretty factors. good actually it's good but we still have a lot to yes do. of course of course so it could be genetics as well mm -hmm. so there it's it's a very heterogeneous population yeah and this is why i love working with children with cerebral palsy because uh, to quote some uh, medical doctor in montreal is you all the kids you never see the same one okay they're all different they all have different clinical impairments sensory motor impairments cognitive deficits yeah. So, so what you're saying is the disorder is not always the same. It's never the yeah. same. So you have some patterns that you can observe uh, across all kids. Yeah. 
but it's it, because you also have the environment factors that you have to take into consideration whether you grew up in a rural environment where there's no resources or you live close to the hospital or rehab facilities or you have access to clinicians at school settings or community settings so all these factors need to be taken into consideration when you're doing research in this population but so yeah for, for example one of the uh, few of the kids can have a brain malformation okay. so when you do a brain scan you can see that the half the brain is missing so missing that's a, in what sense it's just missing there's no neurons there's nothing it's, okay it's just an empty space okay so there's no brain activity in that yeah. region but like the structure is still there there's just no activity yeah so okay. the structure is, is still there but there's no white matter there's no neurons there's no connections there, okay. there's nothing so there's very good pictures that i'll be able to yeah. to show after or that or we're going to put in the video that that shows how the brain is developed in these kids so yeah. that's brain malformations but there's also lesions yeah. so similar to uh, stroke etc yeah. so you have for example different regions so for the let's say the motor control area yeah. then you can have an absence or a lesion that can alter the movements done by these kids right. on a daily basis right. so it's very different from kids to kids okay okay it's interesting that you say that's very exciting that it's a heterogeneous population because in a lot of at least in my like field of field of psychology heterogeneous populations are kind of um not burdensome but they're problematic because it's hard to establish like causality and any type of pattern to find that so it's very interesting to hear that you're actually encouraged and like excited about that so these kids with like these brains that have like um, no neuronal function um is there a pa not a pattern but like is there a timeline for like a severity so like what's like the range of they have a certain like absence of motor function is it relational to how much of the brain's like turned off or like is like what's the severity range of cerebral palsy is actually yeah. what i'm trying to get at yeah no no so i'm going to discuss about the clinical profile but first i'm going to really um, your first question about the develop the, the yeah. when does the lesion occurs does it have an impact on the clinical yeah. profile yeah the time is actually okay, exactly thing. the timing of the lesion is <laughs> is very crucial okay so we know that the features okay you start developing and then you have different pathways that develops over time so up to the age of 40 weeks of pregnancy, and then it's still developing afterwards uh, through your whole life, not only up to 25 years. Yeah. That's a myth. So <laughs> <laughs> I just want to highlight yeah, this. That's yeah. a myth. Uh, there's critical period that could help to optimize yeah. the mother recovery, et cetera. But so in that, during that pregnancy period, we know at specific timeline that, let's say, for example, during the second trimester, you're going to develop more uh, white matter. So if you have a lesion at that time, then we know that it's going to have a, uh, an impact on your locomotion or your f uh, motor function. So it really depends. And the lesions don't have to be big, right? It could be a very small lesion. You're still going to be able to see it using a neuroimaging techniques. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just a small lesion could have a significant impact on daily practice of activities yeah so that's uh like in the in the pregnancy period what about afterwards you said between six and 12 months they could also acquire 
cerebral palsy is that the correct term well i i'm not sure if it's acquired cerebral palsy or more like being diagnosed with okay, cerebral yeah. palsy yeah um, in that time it's often it's about a neurotrauma so you yeah. hit your head or something like that that yeah. could lead to cerebral palsy so there has palsy. to be some external impact most of the time yes yeah. there's other uh, possibilities but it's very rare so i'm focused more about when you were diagnosed cerebral palsy during pregnancy but you could also have a stroke okay. so from the age of zero months to 12 months or up to two years you can have a stroke which leads to cerebral palsy so it's yeah. cerebral palsy it's a very uh, umbrella term yeah. to regroup a lot of uh, right. disabilities uh, not disabilities but imp sensory motor impairments okay. so Usually what we say is the earlier you have lesions during pregnancy, the more severe the symptoms yeah. will be. Yeah. So, and yes, I, I discussed about the heterogeneous types of lesion, but there's also about the clinical profile. Yeah. I'm sure most of the people in the audience will have did uh, see a, or discuss with somebody with cerebral palsy, but didn't know this person had cerebral palsy. Okay. So we'll say CP from now. Yeah, so CP, it's, yeah. It's easier this way. Um, so some individuals with CP are able to walk, yeah. go up the stairs, yeah. go down the stairs with some difficulties. Mm -hmm. But just like when you're sore, when you're going training, yeah. after that, you're trying to go down the stairs and then it's, it's a bit hard, yeah. you're stiff. Yeah. So that's what some of the kids with CP have. But that's the, like the less severe the less form. severe yeah. exactly and usually there's a relate a, a relationship between motor functions and cognitive functions yep yep so if Which i definitely able, want to talk to you about yeah all right so and for other kids they're using a manual wheelchair on a daily basis they're not able to stand some of them are using a electrical wheelchair yeah. so it's a very very wide range of impairments yeah yeah. which is all still very interesting it is very science. interesting yeah and i agree with what you said usually when you're doing science you need a very strong par uh, paradigm research paradigm about the inclusion the exclusion criteria and that's one of the difficulty in cerebral palsy yeah it's it's very wide wide yeah. exactly so you have to find innovative ways to do the stats to interpret your data but to me it also represents the real world yeah of course it's in real life you're never gonna have a thousand people that ex have, have the exact, same thing <laughs> exactly especially with the environment yeah so it's we need to find a way as a scientist to deal with this data mm -hmm. and to interpret it in a way that that makes it better or develop intervention following that so right yeah okay interesting so then um what is the relationship between cognitive and motor functions so yeah i'm my lab is mostly focused on motor functions yeah. but uh, i'm a little bit aware of uh, cognitive as well uh, the impairments that you can see yeah. so the relationship is at least from the earlier studies is there's a direct relationship about the severity of motor functions and cognitive deficits so, for example, if we take the example I just gave, I just said, if there's a kid who's able to walk up or down the stairs mm -hmm. with a little bit of difficulties, this kid has a good chance to be uh, have barely any cognitive deficits. Yeah. So, he's gonna go in college. 
He can go out in college if he wants to. He can get a doctoral training. Yeah. I actually know two people who've got a doctoral training. Uh, That's very epic. CP. Yeah. My, my postdoc supervisor have CP. Oh, okay. So, uh, one of the two has CP. Wow, um, okay. That's so, very like stereotype breaking, actually. Yeah, exactly. I think we have to. Yeah, th that's a very good point. We we need we need to stop thinking about, oh, you're having difficulties walking, then you associate this with cognitive deficits. Yeah. That's not the case. So it, it again, the cognitive deficits are very large. Yeah. You can have memory deficits. You can have attention deficits, and the more severe, like let's say you're using an electrical wheelchair, yeah. there's a chance that you have cognitive deficits. And I want to highlight the chance. It's not necessarily that you have severe motor function deficits, that you have cognitive deficits. It's not the case. Yeah, so the motor deficits do not cause the cognitive deficits. No, correct. Yeah. Yeah. The lesions or the brain malformation yeah. cause the either cognitive or motor deficits. Yeah. It really depends on where in the brain the lesions first appeared or yeah, of course, of course. So, yeah, so th there's a there, there's a relationship, but it's not a relationship. Doesn't mean causality. Yes, <laughs> and it doesn't mean it applies to everybody. Yes, yes. Okay, so then, um, how in like the so you said in the best case scenario, with someone with CP, they'll be fully functioning postdoc pr professors, right? So that's yes. a very very high end echelon of society, and in the least in the most extreme scenarios what does their quality of life look like oh that's a good question some of them will have a the same quality of life as you and me okay so they won't have any obstacles uh, some do so again it really depends so if somebody needs a cane or a technical aids yeah. they're gonna have to use it on a daily basis yeah. So that could be a limitation for them. Yeah. So you need to have a good environment where you, there's a minimal um, number of steps, there's a, a wheelchair access. Yes. So in terms of quality of life, some will have an excellent quality of life, some will not, unfortunately. Yeah. And there's a lot of research about trying to improve the quality of life. Yeah. So the end goal of my research, yes, I'm doing a lot of neurophysiological mechanism up yeah. to development of intensive interventions, but the end goal is to improve their quality yeah. of life, social yeah. integration. So it really depends where you live as well. Yeah, I was about just about to say that. Some places are more wheelchair accessible than others, or some places are more vertical than others. So yes, that does matter a lot. Correct. And just when you if, next time you go outside, just look at your environment and see how accessible it is for an individual with wheelchair. You don't you're we're not aware of it mm -hmm. until you're in that situation or you know someone yeah. it's very tricky yeah. so especially in quebec it's a lot of snow during the winter yes <laughs> it's awful for people yeah. who has to uh, use trans uh, wheelchair as a yeah. transportation method but okay. so yeah but for individuals with cp it's sometimes also it's um some cognitive deficits will uh, lead to di having difficulties to make friends as well. Yes, of course, unfortunately. So, but I think now people are more aware and they're more uh, sensitive about that topic. Yes. Uh, which is really good. I think we did a, a wonderful progress over the last 30 years about yeah. the integration of individuals with disabilities. Yeah. So we're more uh, open-minded. Yeah. So that's a good way. The government is 
funding, yeah, more research in that field. At least here it is. At least in Quebec and Canada as well. Some places in the States as well. And we can thank your research for that, actually. Yeah, and there's a lot of people who's doing research in that yeah. field. So. Yeah, and also, as like a side note, like even in popular media, like CP has come in the forefront in Breaking Bad, actually, right? Like one of the main characters. Um, I, I know Skylar calls her him Junior, but he had cerebral palsy and actually he had to go off his medication to exaggerate a little bit because he was actually really well functioning. So that was actually well well done in that sense. It popularized it and, it and normalized it as well. And I guess goes on to the stereotype breaking um, sentiment mm -hmm. that goes along. So now uh, there's a huge emphasis on motor movement with this disorder because it's a movement disorder, obviously. So then what does their rehab look like? That's a, obviously I'm going to discuss more about the current rehab in Quebec. I am familiar with some of rehabs around the world, but I'll try to generalize. The difficulty with CP, at least when you're not severe, uh, is to recognize that your child has CP. You mean for the parents? For the parents. Yeah. So it's usually after two years of uh, two years of li life that you recognize that your child has CP. So you have the motor milestones. So we know that a child will crawl around the age of six, seven months. Some of the kid, a child will, uh, or newborn will walk around the age of 12 months. So you have a, a motor milestone that says, if after two years, your child is not being able to walk, mm -hmm. then you should probably consult. Yeah. That's what leads sometimes to, okay, your child has CP. So is that like a correct or misdiagnosis? What do you mean? So it, it, you said it might have CP. Okay. You mean as like an indicator then? As an indicator. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. as an indicator. And then you're going to meet with the doctor, and then he's going to run some tests. He's going to do a MRI, mm -hmm. and then you're really going to be able to diagnose that this kid has CP. Okay. And is this diagnostic like time sensitive? It's not necessarily time sensitive. Uh, it's, it's really more the apparition of the limitation you have on a daily basis. Okay. And that's how you're going to know that your child has CP. So it's not really time sensitive. Some will argue that it's time sensitive in the sense that you have to develop inter intensive interventions to optimize the motor functions or motor recovery. So that's okay. Um, but the diagnosis is not necessarily time sensitive unless it's severe and it needs uh, uh, technical aids or yeah. so that that could be. So in terms of like rehabilitation, when you're diagnosed with CP, mm -hmm. at least in Quebec, you're going to have some help provided to the parents. Yep. So what does that look like? First, how to accept that you have a child with a disability. Yeah. Yeah. It's not easy. I can speak with by experience with my parents. They, they share me their story. I yeah. see a lot of families with, uh, with a child with disability. It's very hard to accept and you need to accept it before going forward you need to find ways to um help your child yeah uh, have some it's a lifestyle change too right it's like they have to accept that their expectations have to be shifted and um tailored to what's going on right now correct and that's correct. difficult for a lot of people exactly and i'm sure you can tell more about this than me since you have a uh, you major in psychology okay. so the, the process to accept something, it takes a long time. Some people will take a month. Some people will take a year. Some people will never accept it. Very heterogeneous, I would say. Again, yeah. And so I would say that you start the rehab treatments with 
physical therapists, occupational therapists at a very early age. So around two years old, yeah. you can see also speech pathologists also. Some of them will have difficulties talking. Yeah. So if you're in a good environment or an environment with a lot of resources, I should say, then you can have access to all these clinicians. Yeah. So their, their rehab is and therapy in general is very multidisciplinary very right? it's across like many disciplines to help them correct yeah correct. Uh, it usually once or once a week or once a month that you have treatments that's not bad it's not bad but it's not what i was hoping for right. that that's something that but it's like that for every pathology basically yeah. Yeah. after that you go in school and that's where it's difficult Okay. Because sometimes you don't have the resources in school. Yeah. So the, the, the kid will not improve. Mm -hmm. They will stabilize. Okay. Despite that sometimes they need, they still need treatments. Uh, can you explain a little bit more about what that means? So, for example, if the, the kid is having difficulties walking, we still need treatment, physical therapy yeah. to help them walk better. Uh, increase their strength, etc. Yeah. So if the treatments are stopping during the uh, like when they enter elementary, uh, when they enter elementary, then it's it could be uh, like harmful. I'm not sure if it's harmful, but it's not gonna improve. Okay. Because it's not a CP is it's not a non it's a non progressive yeah. disorder, so you're gonna get worse, but because of your lifestyle, so you're not you're you're not walking, you're not doing sports, you're not doing adapted sports. So it's all a, about a mixture of everything. Okay. So so they enter elementary and if there's a lack of resources, they uh, if they're not too severe, they'll plateau. But also if they are severe, they'll plateau, but in a different sense, right? Correct, correct. So unfortunately, in, in an elementary environment, it can be very hostile, right? And that also doesn't help it. And that also negatively impacts like the cognitive and emotional parts of rehab as well right because there's um there's a like for the kid themselves they have to have an acceptance that this is their life and they have to keep doing those things but it's not very welcoming or motivating when there's negativity coming from their peers essentially correct so yeah we're talking a lot about the negativity but there's a lot also a lot of positive mm -hmm. uh, approaches that happens so yeah. a lot of rehab centers they try to do a lot of treatments of therapy I, i'm talking more about therapies you also have treatments medical treatments as botox etc but um, so you have all those treatments that helps the child to uh, to enjoy his life yeah. to be able to do any type of activities yeah. so you have all those type of treatments available whether it's public or private so that's another story but you also have a lot of researchers who are trying to develop new interventions at a young age yeah. to help the kids to get better as fast as possible. Yeah. So then this kind of begs the question. So let's say a school has poor resources. What would be like a minimal thing that they could do to improve the quality of life or just the environment for kids with CP? Mm -hmm. So school with uh, limited resources, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes what the parents could do is to be attentive to their child needs, yeah. to be uh, to read as much as possible about what is cerebral palsy, but also to be careful what you read. Yes, because <laughs> there's also type of treatments that are not good. Okay, they should be stopped. But can you name them, or is that a no-go zone? Um, 
hyperbaric chamber, for example. Can you explain what that is? So it's basically you're trying to um, level the, you have a threshold about uh, oxygen level, etc. So you go in a tube and then you control the level of oxygen and other gas. And oh. that's supposed to help the kids development of the brain. And that's supposed to, the, the literature is, it's clear on that. It's not working. Okay. And that still happens? That still happens. There's still a lot of, re there's a few researchers who are still doing research in that. And, but that's also the beauty of research is you have to demonstrate it doesn't work or it works. So my difficulties are what I'm struggling with is when there's private company who's doing this. Because right. it, it, it's, um, it's easy for a company to target someone in needs who's uh, anxious, who has stress, who, so they're gonna go in that. And I know some people who did this and they told me, oh, it helped me. Yeah, but it helped you with 1%. Yeah. Not significant, no clinical improvements, at least. It could have been a placebo for all we know. It could be a placebo. So that's always a very tricky okay. topic uh, to discuss with the parents. So yeah, we we need to be very careful. So that's why I'm saying when parents are reading online, they, they really need to be careful. So I highly recommend to talk with the medical doctors, the, the clinical team yeah. to see what are the best options. Okay. Are there any good online resources for that? Yes. Um, there's uh, the CP network uh, that has a lot of resources about this. Um, there's also a Blumview Hospital in Ontario that has tons of resources and obviously there's always the science the science uh, the published paper yeah. in specific fields but there's also a possibility to look at what type of research is done in your environment in your city so there's a lot of research in cp like yeah. uh, i collaborate with people from london australia belgium new york everywhere yeah. so major cities as somebody who does cp work so you can they can always reach out to those people to see if they have an ongoing project that could be beneficial for their child. So you even recommend uh, for those who are very um, information seeking to even reach out to professors? Yeah, why not? Yeah, okay, that, that's very awesome. I, I think I think it's one of our job actually as an academic professor. Mm -hmm. Yes, we're doing research, but we also have to, to transfer our knowledge yeah. to the public in an understandable way yeah. without going all in details about specific uh, set of research let's just clarify one thing though you can only recommend you can't diagnose or prescribe anything correct correct yeah because yeah. yeah. you're not a medical doctor you're just correct a researcher a yeah, yeah. Exactly. i have a doctoral training not a medical training yeah yeah so, so i'm not allowed to diagnose yeah so i'm allowed to suggest or recommend suggest some type of uh, interventions correct. yeah okay or point them to specific labs or specific private clinics that you know or have a rapport with it's okay so or even schools however yeah, 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 exactly. Correct. Okay. So then um, you mentioned virtual reality very early on. Yeah. Can we uh, dive deeper into that? Yeah. So the the use of virtual reality is, it's for me, it's really fun as it's basically you're playing video games. Yeah. And one of the, the, the key point to promote brain plasticity, so basically to develop new connections, to yeah. promote better motor function, motor recovery, is through the enjoyment of doing an activity. So through the enjoyment. Yeah, so fun, motivation, engagement. And what's the best way to do so for kids is through playing video games. Mm -hmm. 
So for me, I when I did my master degree, I used a Nintendo Wii. So it was mostly uh, postural control, balance. So we played some games with skiing, snowboarding, and then we, we showed that the kids, when they're playing in a specific amount of time, they're able to improve their balance after playing right. the Wii. So and this is clinically significant. Clinically significant, uh, statistically significant. Yeah, which yeah. is very major. Yeah, very major. That's a, that some of the kids did not improve, but you look at, the, let's say you have 20 kids, you always do an average of those 20 kids. So yeah. some of them were able to improve. Yeah. And um, so that was one study, right? Yeah. Can you describe like the procedure? How often did they come to the lab? How long were they um, playing the video game for? Just mm -hmm. to like give like a sense of what was the actual environment like for them? So for that study, it was only one visit. Okay. So at 20 minutes. So we were able to look at energy expenditure. We're looking at postural control or balance. But we also did me and other people and other scientists in the world that did a two weeks interventions using virtual reality and they're able to improve which is very short yeah so we were on to we just finished at the vr portion of your master's thesis do you think you could go more into vr rehab in general and what that what are the overall themes in that direction yeah so i basically can talk about what i'm doing with vr in my research program right now which is is going to give a good overview of what is virtual reality right now in rehabilitation yeah so and can we define virtual reality yeah that's a good point <laughs> virtual reality is very a large term so basically it depends on the definition of what you're using so it could be defined as immersive versus non-immersive so for example immersive it's you have the oculus so you have a headset that you totally emerge in the virtual environment using the headset but it could also be non-immersive so, for example, the Kinect, the Wii, the PlayStation, all these games that everyone is almost playing. So even like a handheld video game is technically under is VR. Yeah, exactly. Okay. At least in my definition and okay. the definition I'm using. So you have to be specific about 2D VR, 3D VR, immersive, all these technology. So for me, when I'm referring to virtual reality, it could range from the Nintendo could uh, the switch the playstation the xbox but it could also be about the use of an oculus a headset so sorry so in the rehab environment there's a lot of researchers or clinicians that are trying to use virtual reality as a way to deliver treatment yep. so ncp it, right ncp but yep. all type of uh, pathology as well yeah so virtual reality should not replace traditional therapies as physical therapists, occupational therapists. For me, it acts as a way to be a complement, as an adjunct. So it just adds more okay. therapy. So it could be practiced at home or it could be practiced in the clinical settings. The advantage of virtual reality is that we can implement different key components of brain plasticity. Yeah. So for example, if we want to give feedback are we giving too much feedback? Are we giving not enough feedback for the kids? Is it sufficient? If we provide too many, too much feedback, would he only rely on feedback to improve his performance? Before we get into that, what is feedback in this instance? So feedback, think of uh, when you're doing sports. So for example, if you're swimming or you're running, your coach is going to tell you, bend your knees, uh, increase the length of your stroke, uh, breathe on the one side, running, uh, 
all these type of feedback. So it could be extremely large in the sense that it could be about your quality of the movement. It could be about the performance. It could be about motivational. It could be about anything you think of. So it's uh, the, the advantage of virtual reality is you can modulate the feedback given to the kids. So let's say they, they're skiing and you don't want to give feedback. In a VR In a setting, VR, yeah. yeah, that's correct. In a VR setting. So let's say that you have a headset, but then you're moving with the headset. You don't want to get them you don't want them to rely too much on the feedback to get better. Okay. So it's the same in sports. If you give too much feedback to a, an athlete, he's always going to rely on your feedback to get better. So you have to be cognitively present. You have to challenge yourself. So that has like an autonomous element. Exactly. Okay. Correct. So for me, it's called faded feedback. So you have to reduce feedback over time. So the person has to rely on himself as well. So you, you can correct a specific movement, etc. So it is uh, important that in, uh, the good thing about virtual reality is exactly. So if you're developing your, it's a cons let's say you have a custom made virtual reality. So basically you're collaborating with private companies, developing your own games. Then you can have the option to say, okay, I'm going to reduce the feedback. So you're not going to have a score 10 out of 10 or eight out of 10. So you can modulate that. That's one key component that promote motor recovery, but you also have the task difficulty. So think of it in this way that, let's say you're trying to learn how to play guitar. Yeah. If you're going to choose a Metallica song at the beginning, way too hard for yeah. a beginner, right? Yeah. We all agree with this. So what's gonna happen is you're gonna get discouraged. You're probably gonna take back the guitar or you're going to put it in the war room and then you're going to forget about it. You give up. You give up. Correct. But what if it's too easy? All I'm asking you with the guitar is just do some trick. Just yeah, go like that. Just some minor strumming. Exactly. For months. What's going to happen? Same thing that happens to the person that's too difficult. Although they'd also probably get angry, right? Exactly. So the emotions shift a little bit. So you have all the emotions for different reasons. Mm -hmm. So... What is important in rehabilitation is always to have the right, just right challenge. So it's easy enough that you succeed 70% of the time, but it's not hard enough that you do not succeed at all. So it, that's why it's called the just right challenge. It needs to be challenging enough so you're fully committed. And that's one of the difficulty in traditional therapy is it, it relies on the clinician, the interaction between the clinician and the, the child. Right. So the clinician has to know, okay, it's too easy, or it's too hard. Is he going to get unmotivated? Is he going to cry? Is he going to yell? He's I gonna... have a question about that. Is that in the middle of their activity or just when they're reporting back to the clinician how it's going? So it's during and after. Okay, okay. So it's all about a combination of trying to have the precise level of difficulty during the intervention, but also afterwards. So you can always ask the child, was it too difficult? Okay, I'm going to change game. I'm going to decrease the difficulty, etc. So for me, virtual reality is one of the best options for controlling that. Right. And that's what I, we're actually trying in my lab uh, with some co colleagues is how can we modify the task difficulty based on the child's uh, 
perception of emotions. So we're basically putting a camera, trying to read the face, the, 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 the emotions to the, uh, on the, vis the face and say, okay, that's too difficult done. So that's where we're using machine learning, deep learning, artificial intelligence. We also have physiological measures, heart rate, um, skin conductance. Skin conductance. Yeah. I was looking for that word. So, thank <laughs> you. so we're all trying to do that. It's a very challenging way to do it, but I believe that's that's going to be the future. Yes. So imagine if you're playing video games. Forget about rehab for a second. You're playing video games, and you have the option to always put it at a challenging level, just so you have fun. You don't get tired of it, and it's not too difficult, so you quit. That will be amazing. And I know a lot of companies are trying to implement this. But in rehab, it's crucial yeah. because it promotes the brain plasticity. That's interesting because not all forms of rehab have this like gamification element to it, which, you know, like for if you have like a knee surgery and then you have to go into physio, some people can get very discouraged at like the laundry list of things that they have to do. I mean, some people will get encouraged because they'll, they'll regain their autonomy, their functions, and they'll go to the gym and feel different right but for this it's different right they have to have a, a like a zone of like proximal development something like that and also enjoy it and now that this begs the question is it lifelong this type of rehab or is it at a specific time is it most effective at a certain age like what's what are those details looking like that's a very good question i don't think for me it will be a lifelong treatment with so vr with VR or any traditional yeah, okay. therapies, it's it's very difficult to target specific age. Some people are saying, some scientists are saying that there's a critical period to promote motor recovery, which is true, but it's it's not a it's not clear what age is the best to optimize mm -hmm. motor functions. What makes it difficult specifically? To, uh, to to detect like the critical period if that exists. You need a very strong research paradigm for that. You okay. need yeah. neuroimaging techniques. And you need, basically, if you're looking, let's say, from the age of 5 to 21 years old. Okay. Let's say we're building a project. We're trying to answer your question. So we have kids with CP, age from 5 to 21. Now we're trying to say, what is the critical period of having an intervention that optimizes motor recovery, brain plasticity? First, you need the money, which is always challenging in, in research. And then you need at least 20 kids per group of age. Because okay, you want to say from five to seven, seven to nine, depending on the scientific literature. So you want to have at least two or 300 kids who are playing video games on a specific amount of time. Then you want to do neuroimaging before, after to see if it changes. Not during? But you could also do during as well. But I assume it's a bit more difficult, it's, right? uh, Yeah, you need a functional MRI. Yeah, it's which all, is very expensive. It's very expensive, <laughs> and there's tons of possibilities to do. So just in that sense, I would estimate a project at least a few million dollars oh, yeah. just for that. And, and spanning across how many like years? That's also the question. Yeah. And how you're going to recruit mm -hmm. these kids. Yeah, at all the same time, and then follow, and then do the study, and then maybe even follow up afterwards. Correct. Right, because there's there's the problem of attrition rates as well, and that's like that just kills all your data. Okay, so that's um, 
but ha- basically is there still something to find from the data and, this, and right now is like is there a critical period is there any evidence showing for that or what's it against yeah so, so there's no critical period as per se for now i think all all time is good whether you do it at 12 or 18 it's always going to be have a positive impact if it's a well-constructed intervention so let's say for example we're using vr in my lab we're using the oculus uh, quest so we're developing some games that incorporates all the key components. It's called motor learning principles, basically. Yeah. So how to use different principles to promote motor recovery. So for us, whether you do it at the age of 5, 12, 18, it's important. Yeah. We have ongoing projects that in Montreal with one of my colleagues in Montreal that we're doing a two weeks intensive intervention we're mixing both traditional therapies with clinicians and we're using also virtual reality. So we're combining both. So it's a 70 hours training camp in two weeks, which is the equivalent, at least in Canada, of a year and a half of therapy. But wow. In two weeks. Wow. Okay. And so what's the sample size looking like? Now we're this summer, the summer 2023. We're recruiting seven kids with CP. Okay. But this project is going to last at least five to seven years. We aim to get to recruit at least 50 children with cerebral palsy. And now at the end, we're going to be able to say, okay, this led to better improvements on mother functions. Right. So that's, we're using virtual reality for that group of age, which is uh, six to 17 years old. So they're doing about 20 hours of virtual reality within that camp. But we also have other projects that we're trying to incorporate virtual reality in community settings. And that's the rehabilitation continuum. So you go in a rehab, you get treatments, and then you go to school, you reduce your number of uh, therapy. But afterwards, you also need therapy in a community setting. So you have to make sure, like at the age of 18, 19, you go to university, there's no more therapy unless you pay. That's, that's the issue. So some community settings have offered for individuals with physical disabilities, including cerebral palsy, that they can offer therapy over a seven weeks period or a 10 weeks period, depending on where you are. And what we're trying to do here is we're trying to implement virtual reality in these camps. Because I, I discuss about all those modern learning principles, but it's also virtual, one of the main advantage of virtual reality is you can develop something that is not accessible yeah i mean it's the limitations are like kind of very very high like you have a very high roof of what you can do what environments you can set up the timing the applicability the challenge right um so that's that's something that like the real world has struggles with i guess we can call it right yeah well there's limitations about virtual reality the limitation is the budget Yes. That's it. In what sense? That in a sense that it's super expensive to develop games nowadays. Okay. You need good programming skills. You need good arts. You mm-hmm. need good graphics. You need somebody who understands what is crucial for rehabilitation. Right. So for us, we're collaborating with a private industry in Montreal that help us to develop games. And I'm always amazed by their company is rather than just programming, it's a drag and drop feature. Yeah. So, so you have the Oculus Rift on your head, 
And then you just, you have a Canva and then you have imported assets or you can buy assets. What I mean by asset is a chair, yeah. table, uh, table, anything, name it. So Canva is kind of like a room that they're in once the Correct. Oculus is on their face. Correct. Yeah. So you can choose different Canvas or you can make one. And then you're in that game and you have the controller in your hand and then you just select, okay, I want to have this chair. Oh, I want to have it blue. I want to increase the size. So we're developing games in a day wow. with this technique. Which is very quick, actually. Cause it's very quick. <laughs> okay. So then what, since we talked about difficulty being an important, or challenge, actually, being an important aspect of rehab and motor improvement, what is, like, the mo the least difficult game to, like, a, a like, an average game and the one that's, like, really challenging? I, I guess it would depend on the kids. Right. So if, if let's say I, I'm going to take examples of my game. Okay. okay. I'm going to take one game that we developed in collaboration with uh, the private industry. It's basically we're trying to throw a ball on a target. Okay. Like baseball? Baseball, tennis. We're offering the possibilities having different type of balls. Remember, it takes one minute yeah. to change the ball. Yeah. Because so it's, it's drag and drop. Drag and drop. Yeah. That's simple. So what we're doing here is for, for the kids with CP, the kids were studying, they're, they're having hemiparesis. So you are having what? Hemiparesis. Can you explain what that is? So it's basically unilateral uh, cerebral palsy. So it means that the deficits are observed on one side of the body. Okay. They still have deficits on the other side, but very little. It's very like specific to that side. Exactly, yeah. correct. So they have sensory deficits, motor deficits. So for example, if they want to grasp a pen, it's going to be difficult with that hand. So we're developing games for them to maximize the use of the affected hand. Yeah, so then the game has to be good on just one side. Or with this technology, we can modify alternate. it, alternate it like that. That's really cool. That saves a lot on study time, uh, recruitment issues, attrition issues. That's, that's very good. That's um, something that's very, I guess, unique to this type of therapy because in other types of contexts, it's very physical, so it's time limited, whereas this is it's very accelerated. It's accelerating when you know how to do it. Yes, so yes. So I, I don't think we're there yet for the clinical okay. settings. But going back to your question about having a game that is easy to a game that is very difficult, for example, if I have a kid who's able to grasp a ball in the VR game, so with the hand controller, mm -hmm. so he's going to grab the ball and he's going to throw it. Yeah. So let's say the kid has some difficulties of throwing in real life. It's going to be easier in that game because I'm going to increase the size or the width of the target. I'm oh. going to bring it closer to the kid. I'm going to increase the size, the area. I'm going to increase the size of the ball. I'm going to be able to do all that. The kid is, is, not having, is having difficulties to let's say, to reach laterally to grab the ball. Well, I'm going to bring the ball closer to him. And then you can kind of push him more outwards, right? And that's where the challenge and the development comes in. Exactly. So let's say I want to make it impossible for him. Okay. I'm going to put the ball that he has to jump a feet high, grab the ball when it's in the air, and then I'm going to make a very tiny uh, target at the end very far so he has to be very precise and very focused very focused so basically he's never gonna have it and then i'm gonna have the, the just right challenge i'm yeah, gonna have just it. gonna reduce it slowly and slowly exactly so that's the beauty of virtual reality is we can do all of that 
So that's one of the egg example. But we uh, we also did a egg uh, egg hunting game. Okay. So he's uh, on an island, uh, immersive headset again. He's walking across the island. There's a log house, a cabin house, and then he has to find all those eggs. Okay. Then we make different colors. So again, we can make it very difficult to find the eggs. We can make it easy. And you can put them wherever you want. We can put it everywhere. Like floating on the ground, etc. Exactly. And then let's see with that child, I want to have, I want to make sure he's practicing the reaching aspect because right. he's having difficulties. I'm going to make sure in the, in the, in the VR environment, I'm going to put eggs at the right level so you can practice this type of movement. So it's very similar to traditional therapies. You have to reach, but now you have the, uh, the fun environment that you can modify it easy. Yeah. And that makes me wonder how excited are they to do these tasks? Do they, do they respond really well? Are they annoyed or like, what is that? What is it? What is their reaction? Like, how is it received? Mm -hmm. I think it, Overall, from what we got from the kids that we collected so far for our studies, they're very excited. They're very motivated, but it also depends. Some of the I, I would I, I wouldn't hide that some of the kids don't like video games. Oh, interesting. So it happens. So, and then after that, how do you go about it? Worst. Well, if it's a VR intervention, then his data is not going to be good okay but that's also what happens in real life so yeah, that's science sometimes so that's why we you need a big group so if you have 30 kids and then you have one or two that doesn't like it but that's okay you're still growing and showing a group effect so that's good okay so you've described the environment very well now how effective is it how effective it really depends what you're trying to do okay so we're showing in our, one of our study that the you can incre increase social integration okay. so they feel more comfortable talking with avatars uh, oh, online avatars. so it helps them to discuss with other people okay so it reduced their shyness about oh, i'm able to talk with somebody else um, we also showed we're trying to show right now our preliminary data is showing that some of the kids are able to improve motor functions. So, for example, unimanual functions, able to grasp an object is going to be more precise. It's going to be faster. Some of the kids improve. Some of the kids don't improve. So we're trying to try to understand what are the factors that are limiting the improvement. So one of the challenge is we have all those type of games. We have to make sure to understand the, the games, but also the individual needs. Right. So we can match the games based on their needs. Yeah. For example, if one of the girls wants to tie her shoes, yep. uh, one of the kids, she wants to tie her shoes, but she's having difficulties to grasp and to do an extension of the wrist. So what I'm going to do is, okay, your goal is to be able to attach your shoes. So I'm going to deconstruct the movement mm -hmm. okay it requires that you do a full extension of the elbow uh, the elbow the flexion of the shoulder extension wrist etc and then i'm gonna see what are these movements be can what type of movements can be done in a virtual reality i'm gonna select which games is suitable for her and what type of game she likes also 
So it's it's a very uh, it takes a lot of time to do all of that. But at the end, I'm gonna be able. And I didn't practice the shoelace. I, I didn't practice attaching a shoe. I practiced the movement required to do mm. that task. Yeah, because it's a virtual shoe. It's a virtual. Well, it could doesn't need to be a virtual shoe. Okay. It could be I'm practicing throwing a ball. Yeah. And I'm putting parameters in the virtual reality that she needs to over exaggerate her throwing. Mm. So basically, she's doing a full extension of her arms. Mm -hmm. When previously she might have had difficulty with that. Correct. Okay. So that's all that you have to think of when you're a clinician or a scientist when you're developing games. Okay. And so you have a background in neuroscience. Can you talk about the neuroscientific things that go along with those extensions and how does that help with their recovery and what is the link between you know vision and motor stuff because this is a very visual thing that's going on but at the i guess on a like unconscious level they're doing something innately so what is the relationship there i know that was a lot of questions you can break <laughs> it one at a time no, that's fine so i'm gonna step away from virtual reality to answer that question i think it's gonna be easier in that sense so during my postdoctoral training, we did a, t uh, a two weeks, three weeks, sorry, 90 hours intensive camp in three weeks, 30 hours a week of traditional therapies. So it's basically bimineral therapy where you always have to use both ends to complete the task. And remember, some of the kids are being difficulties to do a specific movement because they are in triple flexion. So when I say triple flexion, it's the wrist is flexed the elbow is closed and the shoulder is a little bit high. Are they like locked? They're, it depends on the muscle tone disorder. So for okay. example, if you have spasticity, which is depending on the velocity. So basically, if you move too fast, your muscle will contract and then you're going to reduce your amplitude. Okay. So it, it's not necessarily locked. You can work on that. Physical therapists have been known to work on this. You can use Botox as well to reduce the, the muscle tone disorder. So you have to do all of this to help the kid. Right. So you have a lot of traditional therapies that we've been doing in, in New York when I, where I did my post-up, but we're also doing the same here. And what we were able to show is we were doing neuroimaging techniques. So MRI, magnetic uh, resonance imaging. So we're reconstructing the brain in three dimensions. So we're looking at different pathways. So when I'm talking about pathways, think of a cable starting from your brain to your hand. Yeah. So it's neurons, basically. Yeah. So that's going to be able to control your hand. So we know specific regions of the brain is, is controlling your hand. Yeah. So that's called a homunculus. So specific. Yeah. You, I'm sure you remember yeah, 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 your yeah. classes. <laughs> but uh, for those who don't know, what is the homunculus? Well, we can add an image, obviously, but what is that? What is the theory behind it? So basically, it's a specific part of your brain that controls all your body. Yeah. So you have a huge head because you're, you have control of your nose, your mouth, etc. You have hands. So it's basically a little human, disproportionate human in your brain. Mm -hmm. Again, it's just an image yeah. that says, okay, this part controls your hand, this part yeah. controls your So feet. specific regions control specific movements. Right. Specific segments of the body. Yeah, correct, correct. Because movements is also different parts. Yeah. So, but it's also all combined. Yeah. So what we were able to show is after a three weeks interventions, some of the regions were able to increase the connectivity. What I mean by connectivity is the neurons 
that is activated in a specific regions. So I didn't do the activity, brain activity. I did more like about the integration, the integrity of these neurons. Can you expand about that? So, yeah. So we're looking at white matter integrity. Of, what does white matter do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll give two examples okay. uh, that I usually use to describe what is white matter. The first one is, you know, the electricity wires you have. Like right here. Yeah, like <laughs> here. It's already covered in specific materials. And why it's covered, it's because to transmit the, the electricity faster. That's the only reason, yeah. one of the reasons. Uh, it's also to, to be safe. So it's the same for white matter. So it kind of, you have the, 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 the wire or the neurons, and then you have white matter surrounding it. So it conducts the electricity faster so you can do fast movement. So a reflex is full of white matter. It goes instantly or almost. Some movements, or that is required doesn't have much white matter so your movement is going to be slower can you give two examples so like one which one is a white matter movement or one's more of a uh, gray matter movement um i wouldn't go in the difference between white and gray matter basically is the body of the segment uh, of the neurons so it's, it's just a terms to dissociate the brain. So right. whether, whether you see white or gray matter, the gray matter is really the soma, the body, the, 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 the base of the neurons, whereas the white matter is really the conduction okay. through the neurons. Okay. So that's what I'm mostly interested in my lab is the white matter integrity of the different yeah. regions. Another good example to describe what is white matter is multiple sclerosis. Okay. We know that most cases in multiple sclerosis uh, usually appears around the age of 40, 50 years old. And then you can see a progression uh, on the, of that disorder over time. So you can tell somebody who has multiple sclerosis, let's say he's got diagnosed, and then over the years, he's going to have difficulties to walk. He's going to be slower in his movement. That's actually multiple sclerosis attack the white matters. Right. So you see it. A decline? A decline over time. So it's the same for cerebral palsy. The lesions alter the integrity of the white matter. It's not a decline. It's not improving over time if you're doing nothing. But what we showed in our lab and in during my postdoc is that we're able to increase the white matter integrity of specific regions. Which region specifically? Yeah. So for my case, during my postdoc, we did the corpus callosum. So the corpus callosum is a region in the brain that connects the two hemispheres. So left side of the brain, right side of the brain. It's like a bridge. It's a bridge, correct. And in that corpus callosum, you have different regions for the motor area, sensory area, cognitive areas, all, everything you can think of, it's basic goes through there to connect the two hemispheres. So what we showed after 90 hours of training of bimineral therapy is that we're able to increase the white matter integrity of the motor area. That's which amazing. Is it's exactly it's amazing it's it's hopefully it's going to change the way we give treatments but it also helps us to validate our therapy right because yes you can look at clinical measures yes it did improve time precision but if we're able to back this up by a change in the brain then that's going to be very helpful in the future now I showed these results where one of the first people who did this in cerebral palsy, 
that one study is not enough and it could be also because of methodology uh, the, the way we did this so a lot of people have questioned this in a sense that, and it's okay that's how science should go and even nowadays in my lab i'm still questioning my old research i'm trying to increase our methodology approach we're trying to do a new innovative way so we're all trying to do that to ensure that's the that's really these results we obtain i know there's few other people across the world who are studying this that white matter specifically in the corpus callosum uh, of the corpus callosum yeah. it could also be the uh, different pathways to control the movement the sensory feedback so where a lot of people are trying to do this okay and how have the results been so far so good um, but one of the difficulty is the mri that we're using first you have the equipment the mri okay so you have different companies siemens philips so you have those two big companies and others so if a, a team from belgium a group of scientists from belgium is using the siemens one and i'm using the philips one how mm. can we comparate right uh, compare our data yeah. can we if so how there's different ways to do it so the results so far are pretty interesting but it's hard to arrive at a definite conclusion I don't think we're going to be able to do that over the next five or ten years. I think we need to rethink of science before doing this. So, for example, data sharing. Yeah, that's something that we need to do. Open science. Yeah, that's a big topic, and especially the medical fields. Right? Correct. Because you publish papers, and we assume the data is all equal, and, and that it's a f there's a fidelity of data. But realistically, uh, there needs to be some type of either data sharing, maybe even data auditing, right? To have a true holistic picture of it all. Mm -hmm. But exactly. And that's that's something I really want to go move forward that I, I, I know it's going to be helpful, especially in my field, since we don't have we have limited number of participants. So you have the equipment and then you have the the, the, the methodology you're using to extract the data. How are you going to filter the data? What type of filter are you going to use? All that is very important. And right now, NCP, no one is using the same methodology. It's not a limitation, though. It's also an advantage. Maybe someone's have a better methodology. So we're trying to develop. We're, we're hoping to submit a paper in the next month or so about the methodology of what we're doing here. So like a, like a, is it like a meta-analysis of like the methodology or what type of analysis is it? That you're we're just showing our analysis. Okay. So okay. we're collaborating with the excellent researcher in University of Cherbourg. So that's a city in What's Quebec. his or her name? Maxime Decoteau. Okay. So he's excellent. He's one of the best in this type of analysis, but he never studied cerebral palsy. So he's very known in typically developing children, healthy adults. So we're we approach him he's a mathematician scientist so we approach him saying hey we need your help can you help us and then that's why I'm, i was saying earlier the multidisciplinary yeah. approach is extremely important yeah so what we're showing in our papers is that we are able to reconstruct most of the pathways in the brain we identified 40 or 45 pathways that is important to us which is a lot of pathways it's a lot especially in in cerebral palsy we're always using the same three pathways 
the ascending pathway, the descending pathway, and the corpus callosum. What I'm talking about ascending and descending pathways is the motor pathways and the sensory pathways. Yeah. So, for example, if you touch an uh, oven that is hot, you're going to have a nerve, the sensory nerve that's going to say it's warm, it's going to go up in your brain, and then it's going to trigger some area that says it's hot, and then there's going to be a descending pathway that's a motor uh, pathway that say you have to remove your hand before you burn yourself. Right. So these pathways are full of white matter. Yes, because they're fast. Because you have to be fast. Yeah. So that's usually these two pathways that are studied. There's a few others, but now we're showing that, look, we were able to reconstruct 40 pathways. And one of the reasons people were not able to do it uh, until now is lack of resources, etc. But it's also because of methodology. Okay. So it was not up, it was not there yet. Now okay. we have new methodology. We're able to develop a few things. The mathematician has helped us tremendously. Uh, computer science also. So now we're able to do all of that. But we're still facing challenges. As always. <laughs> think of it. I, I said earlier about the cerebral palsy is missing half the brain. Mm-hmm. Sometimes. In the worst case, it's missing half the brain. Sometimes it's missing... I don't partially. Wanna, uh, yeah, partially, sometimes 5%. We never put numbers to, but just to better illustrate for those who are listening to us. So think of it, you're missing a big portion of your brain, and then you're trying to identify pathways that goes through there. It's impossible. Yeah. Uh, or sometimes you create a model. So basically you incorporate a model. Like a math model or a computational model? It's both. It's both, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a math and a computational okay. model. So you're using these two approaches in healthy adults, it works, because of course. But then you're applying it, this model, to somebody who's missing a portion of their brain. Right. So it's not working. So you have to go back to the programming, you have to develop new techniques. So that's why it's uh, it, it was very difficult. and. I, my lab is doing this, but there's other labs who are excellent at this. That So I know four or five labs who are actually working on that right now. Okay. And are, are they all working together, I assume? Um, we're exchanging. We're okay. talking. We're, we know the limitations. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a race also who's going to first publish. <laughs> uh, that's how science works right now. But we're... We're hoping to collaborate all of us together after to share data to see how can we improve. That's a very healthy approach to science because um, there's some sometimes there's a, a possessiveness to data, right? And so the collaboration is actually very beneficial for not only like the the research element but also those with CP, right? Like they benefit a lot from that. That informs the clinicians. So that's very it's very humanistic what you guys are doing. So um, now I just had this, I was holding this question for a long time. So, um, so you have, you identified pathways that you have reconstructed, as you said, are they permanent reconstructions or do they require consistent, um, like consistent practice and therapy to maintain those connections? That's an excellent question. I, it's partially reconstructed. Okay. It's not fully reconstructed. Um, because if you compare, let's say, the white matter integrity of the corpus callosum compared to typically developing children, it's, it's still not comparable to typically developing children. Now the question is whether it lasts, this, these effects. We don't know. Don't know. We d- don't know. It's too expensive. Yeah. Think of it. It's $500, $1,000. 
to have one MRI. Now you're gonna have you're gonna need multiple. You're gonna have to control what the kid does on a daily basis, his environment. There's so many factors that can have an impact on that. So we do not know if it lasts. We hope so, but there's no studies who are showing this as of for now for CP. Right, and just to add to the difficulty, there's no real animal models for uh, CP, so that so you can't actually do some type of real like invasive ca or maybe causational analysis on like mice per se. So you have to actually just work specifically in humans and maybe combine some computational methods to see how it goes about. But it's, it's as you said, it's very money limited and time limited mm -hmm. and also maybe even attrition limited, right? Like they might feel better and be like, no, I don't necessarily want to be part of the study, right? So do you have a hypothesis as to what might maintain those connections? I think... Um I think to maintain these connection, you have to be active. Yeah. That's the key. Or more active than you were before the rehab, right? Correct. Yeah. But even that, how do we know he was not active before? Right. That's always a caveat. Yeah. So one of the, the, the in cerebral palsy, what we often observe is that children are not like, they're training. Let's say they're doing bimodal therapy. When they go back home, they're still using their less affected hand. Yes. So it's a non-use. So they're losing that. So what we need to emphasize is even if you're going back home, you still have to use both hands. And that's very difficult yeah. to control. The parents need to be involved. The kids need to be motivated. Can, okay, so you've we've so far we've highlighted a huge like technological aspect in in rehab. Um, with reminders, can uh, let's say like a like an Apple Watch help with reminders to have like timed, scheduled, or maybe not but just reminders in general of today. Maybe use your hand this amount of times, right? Like there's reminders of like you know get up and walk and get up and drink some water. So can that be like tar not targeted but like specified towards them? Yeah. So we have a group of researchers in Quebec City who are doing this right now. They develop a, a watch that have uh, accelerometers, so it tracks how you move your arm through the day, and then it sends you a reminder: please use more your arms. So these are—that's one of our project actually. These are very good. So it reminds the kids to move their arms on a daily basis. So we hope with that that it's gonna maintain the level the improvement they did during the camps or right. during the intensive so that's uh, i started this during my postdoc we had a patent about this oh yes that's right but a lot of people are developing this as yeah. well and uh, to be fair there's a lot of people who are much smarter than me and they have the <laughs> expertise in this field so of patenting or the device making the device making okay. it's yeah. it's not my expertise at all so it was just an idea i had during my postdoc we developed it we sold it it was fine so we were very happy but now in Mon in quebec city a lot of people there's one engineer a uh, scientist engineer who's doing developing this and we're using this during our summer camps with those kids okay and how many kids are going to be using these watches or devices so this year i believe it's going to be eight eight okay so they're going to go back at home wear this for a couple of weeks and then we're going to see we're going to make some relation between our data and then we're going to see if it 
help them to maintain their improvements. Okay. And um, another th common theme in um, medical types of research is problems with uh, voluntarily doing things, right? <laughs> so, and that, that applies in both like research settings, clinical settings, and also just showing up to doctor appointments, right? Like these, these massive stats of the cost to society of no-shows, right? So in the CP population that's uh, been recruited, um, what are their attrition rates? Are they very willing to study? And are they very, very willing to be um, followed up for these studies? Like what's their participation rate like? Mm -hmm. I, I would say it really depends on where you are located. Okay. That's the, that's the first thing. Uh, so for example, when we were in New York and we said, hey, there's a 90 hours intensive interventions, we recruited over 20 kids a summer. What was the compensation for 90 hours in three weeks? None. None. You mean com uh, financially? Yeah. None. None. Interesting. But think of it. In New York, you have to pay to get treatments. You yes. have to, get, to pay for therapy. We're coming from Quebec that yeah. everything is free. Yes. So that Or at least publicly it's free. Publicly. Yeah. yeah. So for them to get 90 hours for free. It's a steal. It's a steal. Yeah. So unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. There's pros and cons. Uh, it's it's a good thing for research because it's easy to recruit mm -hmm. but it, overall they're very the families with children with cerebral palsy are very busy they always have appointments medical appointments uh, occupational or clinicians appointment so they're very very busy so it's it's very difficult to recruit children with cerebral palsy yeah. and i understand and Ethically, it's okay. Also, you yes. cannot force them. <laughs> of course not. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I think I'm in a good position. I'm the vice president of the local committee of the ethical board in Quebec. So we, we, I'm fully aware of it. Scientists should be fully aware. I hope they are about the, the ethical approach. So we're asking them if they say no, then it's okay. Also. But I would say, personally, I think it's very, very difficult to recruit because, as I said, the parents are busy, the kids are busy, they don't want to miss school. And I understand. So you have to be okay with that when you're going into pediatric science. Yes. You have to be, like I told all my students, if you need to collect data, be free during the weekend yep. and the evenings. Yeah. It's that simple. When I recruit all my students, I tell them, if you're not willing to work during the weekend, don't come in my lab. Yeah, which is very, very um, nice of you, actually, because you're being very transparent about the demands of the job, let's say. Correct. Yeah. So during my PhD, I think I was for a full year at the lab every weekend because I was uh, recruiting. Right. So, but that's how it is. But that's, yeah, that's how it is. And that's what you signed, that's what you signed up for. And, it, and it's okay, right? Like some, some, some research doesn't need to be like that. Like when I was working in... Um, in Dr. Jeffrey Mogul's lab, like I didn't have to show up on the weekend. I could if I wanted to, but no one was there and I'd have to like sign in and all that. So it varies, right? Mm -hmm. So um, you mentioned parents, which is a thing we actually kind of skipped over. How can parents support their kids with CP? I think the first thing for me is to make sure the parents are okay with this. Yeah. So I can speak from an experience as my, since I grew up with an amputation and my parents told me uh, and I, I spoke to a lot of people about, I help a lot of parents also saying, okay, your kid's going to have this problem. So 
I think psychologically we need to help them. That's the first thing. You need to be aware of the limitation. If there's any limitations, you be you need to be aware of the resources you can have access. All that you need to be aware of. What is your child thinking? Yeah. About his handicap. That's very crucial, because you're going through phases, and I can speak from personal experience. That sometimes you're gonna be upset that you have a handicap. Some like at the age of 14, 15 years old, you're gonna have questions like, "Am I gonna be able to find a someone, a, like a boyfriend or a girlfriend?" Yeah, you mean those with a disability? Those with disabilities. You, everyone's gonna question themselves about this, so you're gonna have to accept your differences, mm -hmm. which is okay. Yeah, it's a nice thing she said: differences and not limitation. Yeah, correct. It, it, but because I was able to accept my my handicap. Yes. So uh, if you ask me when I was 12 years old, I would have probably said it in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. So you 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 need to take all that into consideration. One thing I really like that we use for the empties in in Canada. It's called the WARMs. It's a nonprofit organization that helps uh, individuals who have amputation to buy prostheses, etc is they have a really good matching system. Okay. So what they do is when there's a new family coming in the nonprofit organization with a child with a missing leg or arm, they're matching this family with somebody, with a family who has a teenager or adolescent with an amputation, and then they can share their experience. That's really so good. It's like really act good. as a mentor for both the parents and for the kid. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I'm still doing this nowadays. That's good because the sense of community is a very important thing in basically all um, populations that have any type of disability, whether it's like mental or physical or whatever. Like they have this communal aspect that's very important to them, right? And uh, group therapy, um, it, I think it uh, specifically in like movies and media might be a bit mis misrepresentative because it's usually for a specific context, but it's actually very beneficial, right? Because it highlights the fact that they're not, um, they're not others, right? There's other people like them. They have normal lives and they can connect and make friends. And it's very, that's a very important part, part of recovery, right? Is actually feeling connected with others because if you feel very isolated in your, um, in your condition, that's a very easy way to spiral in a very bad spot mentally. And that's, that will also handicap, not handicap, but it will, it will harm your situation even more. So. Yeah, correct. And I, I think that the parents needs to see their kids as not having any disabilities. They need to be aware, obviously, because yeah. there's certain circumstances, but they need to put them at the same level as someone on who uh, is typically developed. Yeah. But also depends on the severity, yeah. but they need to be, You want to go play with him? Go play with him. You're going to find ways yeah. to play. You're having difficulties to run, then we're going to adapt the games. We're going to adapt the sports. It's a, it's also a branch of my research program, phys adapted physical activities that we're trying to develop new uh, sports. Or, But there's also, um, in, in Montreal, uh, researcher Keiko, her name from McGill University, she developed an app. It's called Jui app. How do you write that? Oh, I'll have to check that. Okay. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. Um, and she she developed an app that basically is looking at everywhere in Quebec 
where there are adapted physical activities oh, okay, for kids okay. with disabilities. So if you're a parent with a, of a child with a disability, then you look online at this app and then you're like, oh, 20 minutes from my house, there's a, this type of activity. Yeah. So for example, we did paddleboard for individuals. Paddleboard? Paddleboard, okay. So we did this for individuals with in wheelchair and empty stroke, Parkinson yeah. for elderly people mostly. But that was super fun. So very there, beneficial. There's tons of there's ton of activities, but we're not aware of. Yeah. And and those activities they also have very residual effects, right? Because then they're outside, they're doing something different, they're not feeling locked inside and feeling necessarily stuck with their disability. So even though it might seem minor, like the, it actually like opens up the door to some type of new uh pathway in, in life and way of seeing things and also it promotes motor movement right motor challenge right and then if they can find a community as you mentioned where they do like communal sports that's even better for the recovery right because mm -hmm. then they're, they're able to be motivated to stay on par and all the good things associated with um community uh, in sports yeah so uh, we've covered a lot of topics. Yeah. <laughs> now let's get to more like fun, not fun questions, but like more abstract questions. Yeah. So if money was no object, what kind of research projects would you want to see? I have so many ideas. Um, one of the things we're trying to do right now is obviously the access of treatments, like unlimited treatment. Or I should differentiate treatments and therapy. I mean... I mean, t therapy, like clinical therapy. Yeah. If I had unlimited money, I would always like go. You can do all the I have access all the time to this therapy. One thing I really want to do is there's there's two things. Okay. The the first one is I would love to change our ways of doing research in Canada. Okay. So what I'm saying is, it, it's very tricky. It's very difficult to do, but I think with the right person at the right time will be able to do it and with that amount of money is I want to change that if you're going in the hospital or rehab center automatically your data that clinicians are collecting will go in research yeah does that already exist elsewhere though Australia uh, for very, CP specifically for CP specific that's very cool yeah. and I at least from what I heard I didn't check in person but there's few places around the world that works like that. And what, in Australia, which universities does that uh, collaboration? Uh, I'm not sure if they do it, but I know there's a big group in Melbourne okay. that are very well known for this. Okay. So every time a kid goes in the hospital, whether it's for surgeries, whether it's for therapy, whether it's for Botox or name it, or clinical uh, therapy, all the data collected goes in a in a data bank yeah and it's accessible to the researchers if you don't want to be you can always opt out you are, you have to opt out yeah so i like this way of thinking that you have to sign to be opt out rather than sign and but we have to change our mentality we have to make sure that it's ethical to do that yeah so it's it's very difficult so with that unlimited amount of money i would definitely do this bring everyone around the world make sure to do something and think of it we're gonna accelerate our research by how many years if we do that yeah 
we're going to have access to tons of data just by one click. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And then it's all scientists at different level, like fundamental uh, epidemiologists, all of them. Are yeah, it increases access. the access and more like it provides more sti like statistically rigorous methods. It provides uh, potential for treatment follow-ups and seeing how they did, or maybe there was one specific case study where a clinician did something really clever. You can reach out to them and all that. It's, it's a very, um, I think it's very doable. It's just, you have to convince a lot of people. <laughs> and, and that's, that's a difficult thing. Uh, that's why I'm saying like, yes, unlimited money, but it's also having the right person to do it. It's somebody in, in, in like in the government who can say, okay, I'm going to change that. Mm -hmm. It's it's very very difficult. Yeah, of course. So the second one I would love to do is uh, we didn't cover that topic, but in my lab we're doing motion capture. So motion capture, think of we're putting markers on your body, little dots, and then we're gonna be able to recreate this in three dimensions, similar to video games. Yeah, or, or, or like CGI and movies. CGI movies, Lord yeah. of the Rings, Avengers, Marvels. So we're doing this to help uh, to help the surgeon to make a more decisive type of surgery they should do. So we're do giving them the data where they're coming in our lab, we're doing motion capture, we're saying he has limited uh, flexion or muscle activity, and then they're, we're giving them the data and then they're doing the surgery based on that. So it reduces the number of visits they need after, the number of surgeries often. So what we're trying to do now, and we've applied for several grants, It's we got few, which is is good. Yeah. If you can get one grant, it's really good. So what we're trying to do right now in Quebec, at least, is there's three big pediatric hospital across the province who's doing motion capture for gait. So what's gait? Gait is locomotion. Yeah. That's it. That's spelled G A I T. Correct. That's yeah. just a fancy term for science. Yeah. Um, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to combine all three biggest pediatric hospitals in Quebec to share all of our data to harmonize our procedure because they're doing something, I'm doing something else. So, and it's just like a matter of we're adding five markers on the body and then we're going to be able to do the same thing. Which is five to a ten. lot. Like five markers, is, it sounds trivial, but in these types of context, they're very important. It, it's very important to look at the, the gait parameters, mm -hmm. so spatial, temporal, yeah. how fast you walk. So we're trying to develop this right now. So with unlimited access and money, <laughs> for sure that's yeah. going to be... Because the long... Yes, we're trying to standard our procedure across all centers, but our ultimate goal with this is we want to have the uh, government of Quebec to reimburse this. Okay. So it should be freely accessible to everyone, every kid with CP who needs a surgery to improve their gait. To uh, improve can you expand on that? What needs to be exactly um, openly reimbursed? So the, the, the procedure that they come in our lab and then we're oh, doing okay, a full, okay. yep, they call this a full gait analysis. Okay. So basically we put all the markers, they walk in our lab, and then we're extracting the data from that. But right now, it's not reinforced. So we're trying, there's a few places in Europe that are also trying, but it's extremely difficult to do. So we're trying to do that. So with unlimited resources, I'll be able to hire uh, or collaborate at least with a science, uh, economical sci uh, economic scientist. Yeah. So 
how much is going to save the government in long term. We're going to be able to. Which is a good incentive. <laughs> let's, let's be honest, it's the best incentive yeah. for most of the governments right now. Uh, so we're really trying to put this forward. So with unlimited resources, that's for sure. That's going to be my to-go project uh, that I would love to do. That's uh, it doesn't sound too far fetched to be quite honest with you, right? It doesn't sound like something that you'd have to like import, like you know, like different types of like people from different continents, whatever. It's already here, right? It's accessible. It's just kind of locked away through various means, right? Like you need ethics for data, obviously. Yeah. So you said you you're working with three hospitals. Um, how big is that data set? Do you think? Well, I'm or if you know. On a yearly basis, I know one of the hospitals see over 300 kids. Yeah, and now you're for recruiting. For data analysis. Yeah, and you recruit 20 as like a good number for a study. Yeah. Right, so this is like a huge dis like difference in data, and it would be very, it would be a lot more accurate. Correct. Right? So I'm saying 300 kids with different cerebral palsy or foot deformities or mm -hmm. Duchenne dystrophy, so all type of population. So let's say let, 300, maybe they have 40. 30, 40, 50 kids with CP every year. Right. So think of it uh, as a as a scientist, it helps us in five years, you're gonna have tons of data. Right. But it's also for the kids. Yes, it's always for them, right? Yeah. At the end of the day. You're gonna have less treatments, the surgery is gonna be much better. The financial burden for the parents with a child with physical disabilities is very high. Yes. So there was a paper a few years ago that says in the US for a child with CP, it costs about a million dollar for lifetime care for lifetime care so what would that involve clinical therapy surgeries uh, medication all that house modification as well yeah if it's necessary point. if necessary right. yeah that's a very good specific point. transport needs as well so like r renting specific cars i assume yeah transportation yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's a million for one kid for one kid and that's an average an average. And that's for a disorder that has a one and a half to two per thousand people uh, prevalence. Exactly. So if you add that up, that's quite uh, expensive, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a huge burden of cost on those people, right? And any type of alleviation, even of like 1% would make a huge difference, right? That's quite amazing, I, I would say. Okay, and then the last question I have, because it's a very, I think this is a topic that not many people would be very familiar with is, um, all your papers are in English and you study in a French school. Yeah. Uh, can you explain why that is? Are there any problems with that in terms of um, terminology differences? Because French and English, they overlap, but there's also huge distinctions at the same time. Um, like, yeah, so why is that the case? And do you find that is beneficial or not? Mm -hmm. Uh, there's pros and cons. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm French, obviously. So uh, I, I really like to... I think it's important to maintain our French roots. I think it's important to keep speaking French, but science is English. Yeah. As simple as that. Um, it's the most common language used in science. So it's not a problem in the French university to publish in English. Mm -hmm. the, it's, everyone does it. Yeah. So the only thing is a lot of students are struggling to speak in French, at least in Quebec City. You mean in English? Uh, in English, yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. okay. It <laughs> makes more sense. Yeah. So if you compare to McGill University, there's French people who are going there as well, but their English is going to be a bit better. Yeah, because they're getting their entire education in English. Exactly. For As, as opposed to uh, some students in Quebec City, 
sometimes they come from uh, rural areas yeah. where they don't speak English at all. Yeah. So they have to learn their English. Yeah. So I would say that for me, it's not a challenge, uh, but it could be for some students because they have, in addition to doing their studies, graduate studies, which is demanding. The kids they, will have to apply in English. Yeah, they also <laughs> have to submit a paper in English. So for us, uh, we submit our thesis in, in French, mm -hmm. but the papers are in English. Yeah. And the university is uh, uh, allowed us to submit the thesis in French, but to add the English paper so we don't have to translate. So that's okay. good. They're very open-minded about yeah, this. Which is very good because translation is very long. It's very long, but it's also some terminology. It's, it's difficult yes. as well. You have all those AI, Google Translate, and Futures uh, that is getting much better at this. But the terminology, sometimes it's not, you're not it's able to It's intranslatable. Exactly. So all our courses are in French, mm -hmm. but some of our books are in English. Like the, like the required readings, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Some of them are in English. And sometimes, even me, when I speak in, in a few of my courses, I'm going to say a few words in English because yeah. I have no clue what it is yeah. in French. It might not even exist, actually. Yeah, exactly. It probably exists, but... Uh, but And also, a lot of... Some of my colleagues do publish in French. Okay. So it just... Um, the... It depends on your field. So, for example, if you're looking at the French literature in Quebec, well, you better be published in French. Yeah, or so, if you're doing that in France, obviously. Exactly. So, it really depends. Uh, I think... So, I tell all my students that they have to publish in English, especially if they want to go in academics later. If they don't want to go in academics, they want to stay here, I still tell them to publish in English because of my. C <laughs> for me, it's important. Yeah. I want to share our knowledge. Is your CV in English? Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> there's a huge. Uh, I don't want to say bias, but there's a huge shift, right? Like you're in a in a French province, obviously in a bilingual um, country, uh, teaching at a French university, but everything's like your website's in English, right? Yeah. You're like, everything's in English. So that's why like I'm highlighting this distinction because it, it's, it's interesting, right? It's not, and the reason for that is also not a uh, very evident at face value. Mm -hmm. But at the end, it's just a, a huge benefits to speak two languages. Always. <laughs> so you go to France, you can talk to everyone. Yeah. Like uh, English is the language that is spoke uh, around the world, yeah. for, uh, at least in science, uh, in my field of science, at least. So yeah, it's yeah. just beneficial to Yeah. So in, in like to like capture it all, like there's just a huge, like if you publish in English, you're contributing to the general like body of science that's all in English, right? And if you were to do that in French, you would just actually be like more invisible, right? Um, I wouldn't or at say least invisible. Differently, like, like you have different attention, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, correct. You'll have, maybe you're gonna receive less attention, but yeah, you're not invisible. Uh, there's a lot of researchers who still believe that French should be the main language in Quebec, that mm -hmm. professors should publish in French. Yeah. But we have to be realistic about this, yeah. that if you're publishing just in French, it's going to be extremely difficult to get grants, uh, federal grants, so, yeah. because you're going to publish less often. There's less journals, less impact. So. And there's also a difference with like um, international communications, right? Like if you wanted to work with the professor in Minnesota who doesn't know any French, it's like there's there's an art of, there's a gap that was created because of that limitation. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So anything else to add to that topic? 
of publishing in French yeah. or or just English like English bias publication. I, I think that that pretty much covers it. Uh, I think it's important. I would say yeah. To conclude for that, I would say that it's important to publish in English, but it's also important to preserve our French and yeah. that I always invite people to publish in French if they also publish in English. I think it's it's fair. If somebody wants to publish in French, it's good. I mean, why not? But yeah, if you want to receive the attention, you have to be uh, in English. You have to be part of the, the whole body. Yeah, correct. All right, well, Maxime, thank you very much for uh, for your time. It was really appreciated. This was a very good introduction to podcasting for me. <laughs> and I do encourage you to also do that yourself in your free time if you can. I think you'd have very interesting conversations across and invite all the other professors that, you know, I might not know or other people don't know. So, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to our academy. To support this podcast, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, rate it five stars on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and I look forward to bringing you the next episode. Take care till then.